I'm basically asking what, what does it mean for us to be revisiting past imaginaries of the future from this present? Um, what might have changed since then? Um, are there things about the period around independence and its aesthetic milieu that have now become more perceptible, more present to sense and thought, and therefore invite revisionist com commentary? 70 years later. And here I'm thinking specifically of how a range of anti-caste, anti-Brahmin, Dalit, and backward caste movements gathering force from the colonial period onwards have fundamentally affected our infrastructures of the sensible in ways that we're only just beginning to grasp. Um, so what I want to do is to try and gesture towards um, how and where we might start to look for the forces that have organized, disorganized, and reorganized the aesthetic regimes of caste hierarchy and untouchability as these came into assemblage with uh, the late colonial rise of new image technologies and, and the possibilities for publicness. Um, the categories and operations of colonial biopower, and democratic ideas of freedom and equality. Uh, so time will only permit me to do this through two case studies. One is a print, and the other is a building. So, okay, as we know, um, in part, thanks in part to some fabulous people in this room, by the 1880s, printed images were being mobilized in a nationalist movement closely tied to public debates on social and religious reform. And these prints also simultaneously became vehicles of Sanatan or Orthodox Hindu hegemony uh, in the vernacular capitalist milieu of the bazaar, uh, expanding popular iconopraxis beyond temples to public, commercial, and domestic spaces. So here, the emergent nation was sacralized in recognizably Hindu terms, commandeering maternal bodies to figure the nation's space as the new mother goddess Bharatmata and as the sacred cow. Such prints often uh, featured explicit delineations of the communities comprising the polity. Uh, notably, in the extensively copied cow protection images circulating from the 1890s as part of an attempt to <coughs> construct and consolidate a Hindu community. Now, these images have often been analyzed in terms of religious communalization, but I want to revisit them in terms of a less visible aspect of constituting who counts in the polity and how. So here's a well-known cow protection print from 1912, courtesy Chris Pinney, um, likely based on an earlier version from uh, the Chitrasha Chitrashala Press in Pune. So here, an assembly is being served milk from a cow containing 84 deities. 
uh, three men with Maratha-style headgear, uh, labeled Hindu, a Parsi labeled in Gujarati, an Englishman labeled Saheb, uh, saying, give me milk, <laughs> uh, um, and a bearded figure labeled Musalman. But there's also a man serving them, uh, who wears only a loincloth and is markedly darker than the rest, and hence coded as lower caste. He's labeled Gavli, Marathi for milkmen, and for a pastoral herding community appearing in the 1931 census under Yadav, now classified in Maharashtra as OBC, uh, other backward caste. His presence makes the Hindus legible as the three twice-born castes, or varnas. Their headgear, clothing, and ornaments uh, support this. Now, approaching the cow with a raised sword is an animal-headed demon or monster labeled Kaliyogi Masahari, meat-eater of the Kaliyog. <laughs> Gyan Pandey tells us that in 1911, Molana Muhammad Ali describes this figure as a mlecha, or non-Hindu barbarian, which refer, refers to outsiders or outcasts of any sort, including those the colonial state called the depressed classes, later classified as scheduled castes and scheduled tribes. So this print is an instance, a rare instance, of the literally chimeric, that is, monstrous but also fleeting or fanciful representation of beef-eating Dalits and Adivasis, but vilified as a threat to the polity rather than contained within it. So while the communities giving and receiving the cow's bounty are labeled as such, the demon allegorizes all beef-eaters. So Dalit, Adivasi, and Muslim others shade into each other surfacing only as monstrous, non-human. Now here, the Muslim is subject to a peculiar oscillation that anticipates the good Muslim, bad Muslim trope that's now so familiar to Indians. His appearance as a legible and legitimate part of the milk-drinking polity is conditional on the textual injunction, drink milk and protect cows. However, he also figures allegorically as excluded from the polity in monstrous, evil, cow-slaughtering form. But there's no good Dalit or tribal here. They are irredeemable, appearing only via allegory, as what Rossier calls the part without a part, that element of the polity whose existence is not recognized, not even rendered sensible. Now, there's much more to be said about the different layers of signification in this print, um, iconicity, allegory, and a formal schema rem reminiscent of narrative scrolls consistent with the use of these prints in lectures and meetings. But also you'll notice an excess of labeling and shlokas. I'd suggest that this is an attempt to reassert the terms of Brahminical authority, that is, control over literacy and textual exegesis, in a risky image that A, delinks uh, figuration from priestly mediation 
in the ritual context of the temple and opens it to public circulation, and B, stages a demotic commensuration, albeit unequal and conditional, of heterogeneous social groups. Recall that the original print likely came from Pune's Chitrashala Press. This was founded by the writer Vishnu Shastri Chiplunkar, a Chitpavan Brahmin who was part of a hardline faction under Tilak that took over the Pune Sarvajanik Sabha in 1895. Now, the Sabha was established in 1870 to seek equal, and politi equal political and social status for Indians. It was dominated by English-educated Chitpavans who worked in government and were steeped in the terms of colonial bureaucracy. So it was criticized by the anti-caste activist Jyoti Rao Pule as not being truly Sarvajanic, uh, that is, of all the people. So what we're seeing here is a comprador Brahminism reformulated in terms of a vernacular publicness or sarvajanikta. Yeah. Here, religion becomes a term, a medium of commensuration in the terms of colonial biopolitics, producing variety rather than difference as it actively translates and naturalizes myriad diverse cults into Hinduism and other equivalent religions. This production of equivalence and variety happens in, these, in the figures of proto-citizens, right? But it also happens in the prints as a genre of objects where um, a variety of themes classified partly along religious lines unfold within the same size, format, and material substrate. Meanwhile, in a temporal register, Oh, um, this kind of work of commensuration also unfolded via the colonial classification of calendars along religious lines, which seized on the coincidence of so-called movable feasts for constructing the discourse of the riot. And you'll notice that you know, there's an English, Hindu, and Mohammedan uh, calendar, and actually the names are just the same. Besak and you know, so, so, but there's this construction of difference, um, equivalence, um, and in fact, so uh, so we could add this kind of infrastructural work of spatio-temporal commensuration and distribution to, uh, say, Benjamin's account of the political import of mass reproduction. Now, the cow protections uh, prints approach to figuring the Dalit is an initial step in what becomes the taxonomy of the Nehruvian state, or what uh, Siddharth Bhatia calls uh, the Manmohan Desai school of secularism. Uh, encapsulated in the song from Desai's 1960 film Chalia that goes, Hindu, Muslim, Sikh, Isai, Sabko Mera Salam, Hindu, Muslim, Sikh, Christian, my greetings to them all with no mention of Dalits. Desai's schema is further condensed in Amar Akbar Anthony, 1977, and the John Jani Janardhan song from Naseeb, 1981. But there are a couple of steps between 
the cow protection print and Amarakpur Anthony. One is the 1932 Puna Pact, in which Gandhi insisted on subsuming Dalits into the Hindu fold rather than acceding to Ambedkar's demand for separate electoral representation. So this effectively disappeared Dalits from images of the polity. The other much earlier move is an expansive formulation of the category of Hindu in territorial terms via the notion of Hinduism as the Arya Dharma, encompassing all religions originating on the Indian soil. So Sikhs, Buddhists, and Jains count as Hindus and also disappear within that fold. Um, the term Arya Dharma, uh, adopted from uh, ref the reformist Arya Samaj, was a point of commonality between Gandhi, Hindutva ideologue Vidi Savarkar, and Eknath Ranade of the RSS, echoing the Arya Samaj's imbrication of Hinduism, nativism, and shuddhi, or purity. Because uh, from the 1850s, the Arya Samaj had sh run these shuddhi campaigns to purify uh, Dalits, Muslims, and Christians and turn them into Hindus. Initially, a mimetic response to Christian proselytization, uh, proselytization um, shuddhi was harnessed to the cause of Hindu sangatan, or unification in the 1920s that brought together reformist and the Sanatan uh, Orthodox Hindus in the face of the Khilafat movement, yeah, which was uh, a Muslim anti-colonial movement that spilled into uh, inter-religious conflict. So what we see here is um, a politics of hegemonic inclusion unfolding as the necessary obverse of the more familiar politics of exclusion. Inclusion sounds like a good thing, but as with tolerance for Wendy Brown, it is in fact problematic because it assumes a pre-existing polity defined in particular ways. So inclusion becomes conditional on meeting specific terms of belonging. We saw that with the Musalman, right? Gorakshan uh, karo, you know. Um, now, all of this is rendered literally concrete in a remarkable pre-independence building, the Lakshmi Narayan Temple, or Birla Mandir, in New Delhi. Initiated by Malviya, Hindu nationalist, in 1933, and inaugurated by Gandhi in 1939, on condition that it allow entry to all castes. And remember, Gandhi and Malviya were the ones who were involved in the Pune Pact. Um, a year, just a year earlier, a, a year before Malviya initiates this project. So as with the prints, but in another format, the Birla Mandir represents a reformulation of iconopraxis as part of a two-way traffic of people and icons creating further possibilities beyond the priestly policing of icons in temples. Icons emerged into the public space of neighborhoods in the festivals of uh, Ganapati Utsav in the West 
and Durga Puja in the East. Here again, we see the terms Sarvajanik Mandal and Sharbojanin Puja via the Pune Sarvajanik Sabha and Tilak, who used Ganapati Utsav from 1893 to, con to again consolidate the Hindus. These icons were mapped onto the space of the neighborhood as urban territory, as the festival processions paths enacted a provocative, exclusive, communally defined claim to that territory. If festival icons emerged into public space, temples began to admit excluded people as they too came into public view. So uh, according to Robin Jeffrey, the counting of Dalits in the colonial census was a factor in the temple entry movement of the 1920s, where Dalits and lower castes claimed the right to enter temples and the roads around them. But the Birla Mandir is evidence of how this inclusion of Dalits in a consolidated Hindu polity uh, via temple entry, the Puna Pact, uh, the idea of the Sarvajanic, and the purity-laden notion of the Aryadharma Hindu was a fraught enterprise. As a high-profile temple built at the peak of the nationalist struggle and intense debate around electoral representation, the Birla Mandir carries a great deal of epigraphic self-narrativization. These inscriptions, as well as architectural elements, landscaping, and an abundance of murals, enable us to locate the temple as a formal expression of and an intervention into these debates around representation. They also do a similar performative work to the labels in the cow protection prints, anxiously reinstating a textual narrative to tame the risky forces of mass affect and mounting a pedagogical program of educating a new, uncertainly Hindu constituency into the proper forms of majoritarian citizenship. So take this sign right at the entrance that explicitly describes the Birla Mandir as a Sarvajanic space in the same breath as prescribing the pedagogical use of images and texts. So, uh, and this is English and Hindi. All persons erecting places of public worship, Sarvajanik Mandir, should likewise inscribe Ved mantras, Upanishadas, shlokas, bhajans, and artistic life pictures to improve the religious life of the Arya Dharmi Hindus, including Sanatanists, Arya Samajists, Buddhists, Jains, and Sikhs, etc. So again, Dalits are not mentioned separately here, even within the broadened umbrella of Aryadharmi Hindus, for they are being made to count as Hindu in the project of consolidation or Sangathan required to amass numbers in contradistinction to Muslims and Christians. The latter is confirmed by a discreet sign in Hindi, politely asking local Muslims and Christians to seek permission to enter the temple and another specifying that only Hindu shops and entertainment will be allowed in the grounds during festivals. And reiterating again this expansive listing of Aryadharmi Hindus, again an anxious attempt 
to control the publicness of exterior spaces. This explicitly exclusionary naming of Muslims and Christians in relation to a consolidated Hindu polity accompanies an unspecified anxiety about the putatively polluted and polluting. In the one sign where Dalits are mentioned, conditions are immediately attached. Hindus, including Harijans, may enter the temple subject to the prescribed conditions of cleanliness, full faith, and sincere devotion. So here, caste and ritual pollution shade into the discourses of hygiene and civility. Beggars and those with infectious diseases are not allowed in or near the temple. Visitors are notified that they must behave in a civilized manner, enjoined to maintain moral and physical cleanliness, and prohibited from uh, spitting, bathing, washing, cooking, uh, passing of urine, and disfiguring walls. Uh, the very walls whose murals and inscriptions serve this pedagogical purpose. So again, what we're seeing here is an attempt in the face of the risky public publicness or sarvajanikta required for political consolidation to reinstate an aesthetico-political regime based on textual control over images and spaces and the management of fluid matter across socio-spatial boundaries. Milk ingested as pure nation substance in the case of the print, polluting fluids kept out of the temple. In both cases then, in the process of mapping identities onto territory that led up to partition, the question of imagining and consolidating the Hindu in the face of Muslim, Christian, and other others was deeply bound up with reconfiguring the aesthetic regime of untouchability. In the constitutive repartitioning of the polity as either a part of or apart from a Hindu majoritarian, albeit secular nation state, the obverse of the partition has been the ongoing struggle of Dalits to become a recognizable presence in the polity. Thank you.